If these radical, vicious, racist prosecutors do anything wrong or illegal, I hope we are going to have in this country the biggest protest we have ever had in Washington, D.C., in New York, in Atlanta, and elsewhere, because our country and our elections are corrupt. They're corrupt. That was former President Donald Trump last weekend in Texas, threatening the prosecutors who are daring to investigate him with the biggest protests we have ever seen. It was an unnerving, at times deranged speech that seemed to invoke the specter of another January 6th should any of those prosecutors go so far as to actually charge Trump with a crime. And it got the attention of one of those prosecutors, Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis who immediately asked the FBI for a risk assessment of the possible threats to the county courthouse and to some of our prosecutors and investigators as well. Is this a sign that Trump really is nervous? And how much does he have to worry about what comes of the Willis investigation? We'll talk to Greg Bluestein, the lead political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, about that and much more on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Iskoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. So I am going to start out this podcast by accusing myself of blatant hypocrisy, because I can't tell you how many times I have turned on cable news uh, over the past year and seen them talking nonstop about Donald Trump and said, enough already. The guy's no longer president. He's a blowhard living in Florida who has no consequences for America and the future of this country. And yet here we are (laughs) devoting another show to skullduggery. And look, the reason is he keeps doing these outrageous things in that speech. He promises or vows he'll pardon, issue blanket pardons for everybody involved in January 6th if he ever gets near the Oval Office again. He threatens the prosecutors investigating him. And just in the last day, he has uh, called on the January 6th committee to be investigating not him, but former Vice President Mike Pence because he didn't do what Trump wanted and overturned the results of the 2020 election. But you know, the thing is, I don't know that we should be ignoring ever everything he says, not just because, you know, it, because of the outrage quotient, uh, but because his words do have consequences. And it's just kind of think about this. This is the guy who incited running the country for four years. Yes, but (laughs) which is pretty. This is the guy who incited a deadly assault on the Congress. Right. You know, who whipped up a mob uh, that went in there and people died and there was, you know, all this destruction. And it was, you know, the worst assault on American uh, democracy, you know, in, in, in memory. And there he is at this rally. What is he doing? He's he's telling his slavish followers millions of them, that we're going to have the biggest protest we have ever had in Washington, D.C. Yeah. Right? I mean, 
you would th you you would think if we weren't talking about Donald Trump that maybe after what happened on January 6th he wouldn't call for the biggest protest we've ever had in Washington DC. <laughs> Let me just say one thing to note about Trump is he has many imitators further on down the line in terms of candidates for office this year, because this very weekend, the same time as Trump is making these statements, someone who was running for state Senate in Michigan held a rally and told the crowd that people should show up armed to protect Republican election observers to monitor the counting of ballots in that state. So from top to bottom, there are people who are imitating and reflecting the the kind of the top level message that Donald Trump is Victoria, putting out. Isn't it more from the bottom than the top? I mean, you know, you listen to Republican senators and, you know, they have no nothing good to say about Donald Trump. They always express their disapproval of his latest. Is that, know, I, I mean, it, it's not uniformly true, not uniformly, but certainly McConnell. I mean, Thune, Romney. I mean, there's quite a few who have become increasingly outspoken, I think now. You know, that doesn't get around the the you know, where the base is, but it's at least a sign. Or, by the way, the Republican candidates who are running for office for in both the House and the Senate and lots of other federal and non-federal offices who, who are following uh, everything Donald Trump says. Maybe maybe once they come to Washington, they won't. But uh, it's how they it's how they're going to get to Washington. American democracy doesn't just take place in the, you know, kind of marble clad halls of the United States Senate and, you know, kind of with the rarefied thinking of Mitch McConnell and Mitt Romney. There are thousands of people who are running for office throughout the United States, as Danny says, state senators, state representatives, state secretaries of state, uh, many of whom are echoing his comments and are really sort of accelerating calls to violence and conflict and who are kind of sowing profound seeds of distrust about our democracy. I, I mean, I, I don't mean to dismiss that at all. It is serious. It is, you know, something to worry about. But I do think we have to keep perspective. Look at the stories in recent days. We talked about this a little bit in the last episode, this draft executive order for the Defense Department to, for Trump to sign, to order the Defense Department to seize the election machines on the grounds that there'd been foreign interference. It was a national security emergency. And, you know, that was the way he was going to you know, stay in power. You know, outrageous beyond, you know, imagining that, you know, anything along those lines could be taken seriously. But let's, you know, remember, keep perspective. Nobody signed on to this. Nobody would do it. We learned today from the New York Times that even Rudy Giuliani thought this went too far. Apparently, this was something being pushed by Sidney Powell and Mike Flynn. So even and, and of course, Bill Barr said, no way I'm going along with anything along these lines. So I think it is 
just worth remembering there is a glass half full here. You know, there are people that when push came to shove, a lot of Republicans who were in Trump's camp didn't do his bidding to keep him. But it's why the stakes are it's why the stakes are so high, Mike, uh, you know, for for the coming both midterm and presidential election, because we're about to talk about Georgia. Right. And, And we know that there is a Republican primary for secretary of state down in Georgia, where you've got Brad Rapsenberger, who stood in the way of Trump's efforts to overturn the presidential election down there. And he's being challenged by a sitting member of Congress, a MAGA guy named Jody, Jody Heiss, mm-hmm. uh, who voted against uh, certifying uh, the election in, in, in 2020, who said that the election in Georgia was full of, of fraud and was essentially stolen. And, you know, he's likely going to win that primary. Unclear whether he'd win the general. I think he'll have some stiff competition. But if he's in that position in 2024, you won't be able to necessarily say, you know, at the end of the day, this couldn't have happened because there were people who there there who wouldn't let it happen because maybe he will let it happen. So here's a question for you. We're going to be talking with Greg Bluestein about the Willis investigation in Fulton County. What? would be the political impact nationally if she does indict Trump and he is going to trial. How does that play? And I'm not sure, (laughs) I'm not sure, period, but I'm not sure it's going to help the Democrats in particular to have Trump uh, going to trial. So, Mike, she is not wrong to ask the FBI for a risk assessment, right? Yeah. I mean, no, 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 that's the crazies who could do something crazy. I'm asking politically, though. Yeah. uh, How how does it play? And does it, you know, does he become the martyr who they keep trying to kill and can't? It's impossible to predict. I mean, so far, it seems like there's nothing he can do that will that will have people turn from him. As he as he said, he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and no one would blink an eye. Right. Um, You know, so what's what's a phone call to a secretary of state? The big debate, you know, one of the big debates we've had over the last couple of years um, is if Trump, even if Trump loses the election, which he ultimately did, we'll still have Trumpism. Right. That he's a, a, you know, as some people would put it, he's a symptom uh, of the disease, but the disease is still out there. And so I think you're raising a good question, because I think that that if he is indicted and if he's convicted and if he goes to jail or goes to state prison, um, <laughs> which is, it's you know, even talking about it is, you know, he could be on the ballot running for president while sitting in the, the courthouse, you know, on trial in Fulton County. And um, I have a funny mean, feeling he'll make bail. Just just going to put that out <laughs> there. Think, yeah. Yeah. Think, OK. The my pillow guy will uh, come up. But what impact will what impact will that have on his his followers and and ultimately, we may not be in a better place than we are <laughs> no, right we may now not as a country. All right. Well, look, on that sour, depressing note, we've got a good guest to help us walk us through everything that's going on in Georgia, which is really ground zero for everything going on in American politics these days. So let's get to it. We now have with us Greg Bluestein, the lead political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and the author of the upcoming book, uh, Flipped, 
how Georgia turned purple and broke the monopoly on Republican power. Greg, welcome back to Skullduggery. I'm honored to be back, guys, and there's lots to talk to. Well, there is certainly lots to talk about. So let's start out with the developments over the weekend. Trump gives this speech in Texas in which he threatens the biggest protests ever if these vicious racist prosecutors dare to actually bring charges against him. This prompts one of those prosecutors, Fannie Willis, the Fulton County District Attorney, to write a letter to the FBI. What did it say and why did she write it? Well, she's requesting more security because she's worried about a repeat of what happened in January 6, 2021 with the, with the insurrection, the violent mob, the deadly uh, riots at the, at the U.S. Capitol. She does not want the Fulton County Courthouse to be, become a scene just like that. And I'm frankly surprised that other prosecutors haven't taken similar steps because there was already worries about security issues in Georgia long before this because of the intense scrutiny and media attention that Fannie Willis's investigation has brought. She's already worried about the safety and well-being of her staff because of all the threats we've seen. You know, we've seen some of these threats with election workers and other public officials who are facing intimidation and and uh, it attempts to influence them. In her letter, she actually referenced some of those threats, not just to election officials. She said that, that she'd already made adjustments to accommodate security concerns, considering the communications we have received from persons unhappy with our commitment to fulfill our duties. Unhappy is, I think, probably an understatement. Yeah. Uh, do you have any sense at all of the kinds of uh, communications they've been getting? I mean, and and what form they've taken? Yeah, we just got a broad sense, nothing specific, but it's. I, I was told it was the same sort of broad threats that were leveled at elections officials, and and certainly we saw that in, in 2020 cycle when Gabriel Sterling, one of the top elections officials in Georgia, had to go do a press conference and say, "Stop doing this." You're threatening the very workers who make sure our democracy stays intact. You know, he called on Trump to to roll back his rhetoric because elections officials were getting intimidated and threatened. Thankfully, in Georgia, you know, there were no as bad as the threats were. There was no harm or, or anything like that. But there could well have been. She is the district attorney for the largest county in Georgia and presumably could have called on the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, the sheriff of Fulton County, and a whole host of police forces in-state. Why do you think she chose to ask the FBI to do something rather than state law enforcement? Yeah, that's a good question. And Fannie Willis is recently elected with a mandate, with a sweeping mandate. She beat a longtime Fulton County prosecutor named Paul Howard, who had been in office for decades. And she comes in with this with this broad base of support of Fulton County voters who wanted a change of that office. And I think for her, she wants some backup. The GBI, even though it's a state agency, has a very limited number of officers assigned to Atlanta. Um, Fulton County, um, Atlanta police, you know, same thing. There, and there's already issues with rising violent crime rates in the city of Atlanta. There's already concerns that our law enforcement officers in Atlanta are already stretched too thin. So she wants some some serious backup, and she wants to pre- prevent the Fulton County Courthouse from becoming January 6, 2021 all over again. So, Greg, you mentioned before that uh, you were a little surprised that the other prosecutors uh, haven't taken similar steps, the other prosecutors who are investigating Trump. couple of observations. One is it is interesting that all three prosecutors, Fannie Willis, 
Alvin Bragg, the new DA in Manhattan, and Letitia James, the Attorney General of uh, New York, are all African American. But I think, you know, one reason may be that in many ways the Willis investigation represents the most serious threat to Trump. And I want to get your sense of where things are. It's been, you know, nearly a year since she first announced she was doing this investigation, spurred, of course, by the famous taped phone call that Trump made to uh, Brad Raffensperger. But it's been nearly a year. She recently called for a special grand jury. She got approval for that. What's your sense of where things stand, how close she is, and what the factors are that are going into whether her decision about whether or not to bring an indictment? Yeah, I won't, I won't be surprised to see a concrete development on this in the latter half of the year. This investigation has been going on for about a year, as you mentioned. We're, we're heading into the second year. She recently called a special grand jury that gives her more investigative powers, gives her more subpoena powers to call on witnesses and get certain documents that will be key to her case. And you mentioned the Raffensperger call. That, that's sort of like the, the star um, witness in the middle of this all is Brad Raffensperger and that that infamous phone call he had with, with Donald Trump uh, urging him to find enough votes to reverse the election. But it's only one part of what Fonnie Willis is, is looking at here. She's also looking at uh, Lindsey Graham, senator from South Carolina's attempts to influence Brad Raffensperger. She's looking at Rudy Giuliani and his testimony before Georgia state legislative committees in December 2020, urging lawmakers to, to call a special session and take certain actions. She's looking at former U.S. Attorney B.J. Pack, who resigned after refusing Trump's efforts to undermine the election. So she's looking at what role that played. And I won't be surprised either if she starts looking at the quote unquote fake Georgia Republican electors, the group of 16 Republicans who met on the second floor of the state capitol uh, to have a, a, a phony version of the Republican slate while the real Democratic electors were, were meeting upstairs. And I think we'll find out some other parts of her investigation that are starting to broaden out as well. So this is going to be this is going to be a pretty wide ranging investigation that could that could delve into different facets of of Trump's efforts to undermine Georgia's election. What do you think cuts against indictments here? Um, I mean, there are challenges in this case. She's going to have to prove intent. There are even challenges in terms of like the resources right, of her. We should also point out that Trump's one of Trump's lawyers, Cleta Mitchell, was on the call. And, you know, one obvious defense for Trump would be, hey, I had my lawyer on the call. I figured if I was doing anything that was, you know, remotely illegal, my lawyer would have informed me of that. Yeah, that's part of it. I mean, you mentioned resources and yeah, just just as the state law enforcement officials are stretched, then so is the Bolton County prosecutors. They've got a huge number of cases already on backlog. That was one of the reasons Bonnie Willis won the election. She promised to clear up some of that backlog, more aggressively prosecute violent criminals and and, and maybe divert some of the nonviolent offenders from prison sentences. She's put together a team of about 10 attorneys and investigators and others who are who are working on this, it sounds like almost solely. So she has a group of 10, but you know, by the end of this, it might be many, many more times that. But in terms of the legal parts of it, intent is the big is, is one of the big questions because how do you prove that Donald Trump didn't actually think he won the election? He might have just been, he might really be convinced that he won the election and he was trying to, you know, pursue his his case in his best interest. 
You know, I think, by the way, I think the answer to that, and Victoria is actually a lawyer. She could correct me if I'm wrong. But I'm not sure it turns on whether he thought he won the election or not. Doesn't it turn more on whether he had the intention of pressuring Brad Raffsenberger to actually take steps to overturn the results of the election? Victoria, I'm asking you. I, I didn't know I was. Uh, I didn't know I was. I invoked your name as the only lawyer here. You are being deposed now. I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I think. I think, uh, Danny, you're absolutely correct. I think that what really matters is whether or not Raffensperger was threatened or intimidated to perform an official act that he uh, didn't have a legal basis to do. And, you know, he has, in his book at least, he indicated that he felt he was being pressured and threatened. To do something that was wrong, but he doesn't say illegal. Well, he doesn't say that he thought what Trump was doing would, would have been a crime. And that may well be because he's running for re-election in a Georgia Republican primary against a, a, a Trump MAGA guy, Jody Heiss, and he can only go so far. But Also, that's for the grand jury to figure yeah, out. I was not, say, that's for the, yeah. yeah. This is the prosecutors and grand jury get to decide, not Brad Raffensperger. But I also think that's why they're building this broader case. Because if they try to pin it just on this phone call, it might not be enough. But if they try to say this is part of a pattern of Trump's attempts to overturn the election that involved Rudy, his lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, influencing lawmakers, which involved maybe pressure attempts on certain lawmakers from pro-Trump forces. We, we've reported on that, how, how state legislators were getting phone calls from Trump allies saying, you guys should call a special session and you guys should look into invalidating the election results. Issues like that. Let's talk about the phony electors, too, because that was an important part of the, the playbook that uh, that President Trump was trying to run in Georgia. So there were 12 people on December 14th who gathered in the Georgia 16. state. Huh? I'm sorry, how many? 16. 16 who gathered in the Georgia state capitol. Tell us about who they were and what they claimed they were doing. Yeah, this was the slate of 16 Republican electors. And it was one of the more baffling moments for me as a, as a reporter, because I had just talked to some of these electors as a, as a, for a preview story on the, what a normally wrote process has become this big, huge event in Georgia. Um, normally, you know, there's very little attention cast on the actual formal casting of the, uh, the electors ballots, but you know, with, with all the, uh, the hubbub around Donald Trump's lies about election fraud, this year's process was, was in the spotlight, but I had no indication from Republicans that they were going to try to have their own sort of sham ceremony. And um, as I was upstairs in the state Senate chambers, I walked by a bunch of familiar Republican faces huddled behind a second floor wooden, giant wooden doorway where they usually hold committee meetings and things like that. And I asked one of the, the people, what's going on? He said, oh, we're just having an educational meeting. So I said, that's curious. So I tweeted a picture. I was like, something weird is happening by here, but I'm not quite sure what it was. And as I went upstairs, I realized from reporters who were still downstairs and others who were texting me about it, that was the Republican phony elector meeting. And this was not some fringe group of activists or any. These were some of the most well-known Republicans in the state of Georgia. There Including the head of the Republican Party yeah. in Georgia, right? David Schaefer, the head of the Republican Party in Georgia. State Senator Burt Jones who is running for lieutenant governor right now with Trump's endorsement, the chair of, the, of, of one of the suburban congressional district Republican parties here in Georgia. Other, other well-known party figures were in that room, and, and four of them were supposed to be in that room, but said, nah, I'll, I'll, I'll pass on this one. By the way, on that, I remember when I 
when the story came out, when I saw the list of 16, you know, fake electors, and then I compared it to the original electors, had Trump actually won the election, and I saw there was a there were four who didn't join up, and I said some smart reporter is going to reach out to those uh, electors and uh, people and, and and find out why they didn't join. And then I noticed that you did that story. So uh, what did you learn from them? Yeah, well, one of them is John Isaacson, John, the former Senator Johnny Isaacson's son, who's not really involved in politics, but is a very prominent uh, real estate developer here in, in Georgia. And he was the worst outspoken about it. He said, look, I didn't want to be part of a, a political rally. You know, I didn't want to be part of any sort of weird political gamesmanship. I was busy and I had other things to do that day. Three others, one didn't, one declined to speak on the record, but I got the clear sense that that feeling was the same way. <laughs> she didn't want to have anything to do with, with that, although she wouldn't say it on the record. And then the two others, one, one, one of the uh, activists had a, a loss of a, a family member and so had personal reasons not to be involved. And then the fourth is a student at University of Alabama. His name is C.J. Pearson. He's been, I've, I, I wrote my first profile of him when he was like 13 years old. He became this sort of teenage conservative wonderkind and is very involved in Republican politics. It was involved in like Vernon Jones's campaign for governor here as a far right pro-Trump guy. And he was no longer eligible to be an elector because he lived in the state of Alabama. So, Greg, when I first looked at the submissions to the National Archives, they look on their face fraudulent because the one in Georgia, as in, I think, most of the states, but not all, said, you know, we are the duly elected electors from our state. But David Schaefer, the chairman of the Republican Party, who is one of those electors in Georgia, has gotten out on this one because at the same day he was doing it, he's publicly tweeting, and I'm looking at his tweets now, because the president's lawsuit contesting the Georgia election is still pending, the Republican nominees for presidential elector met today at noon and cast their votes for president and vice president. And then his follow-up tweet, had we not met today and cast our votes, the president's pending election contest would have been effectively mooted. Our action today preserves his rights under Georgia law. Doesn't that take a lot of the sting out of accusing them of criminal conduct if he's publicly tweeting, hey, we're doing this and we're doing this to preserve our legal rights? Yeah, I mean, my gut says that these 16 will not get any sort of criminal charges, but they'll be part of the investigation is, is what I, I'm thinking. They'll be part of the sort of overall investigative scrutiny into what Trump tried to do, what his allies tried to do to, to reverse his election defeat. But I look, I asked him that same question. I was able to make it down from the state Senate chambers back down right as the Republican electors were leaving. And I said, I asked him too, I said, um, you know, why, why are you doing this? And he said, this is basically the same answer that this is provisional. This is a just in case measure. And I said, aren't you worried that this will, this will create a, a precedent? What if in four more years, you know, Republican wins and Democrats are doing this? Would, would you worry that that undermines a Republican's victory? And he said they have every right to do so. So he gave kind of the stock answer. It was clearly an effort for them to surprise Georgians with this decision. This was not something that they, it was covered at the time. This, you know, when, when, when the rest of the world kind of saw those elector, electoral tallies, there was a lot of, I can't believe the AJC didn't cover this. I was like, we were there and <laughs> we covered it at the time, but it got a lot more, got a lot more attention in recent weeks. But again, it was also just all a part of this overall plot. 
Let me just ask another question, though. Even if he tweeted that on December 14th, by the time January 6th rolled around, the Trump lawsuit was no longer pending in Georgia and was no longer a valid reason. Did the Georgia fake electors or the head of the Georgia Republican Party write a letter withdrawing their bogus certificate? Did they tell Pence that they no longer wished it to be considered as he stood on the dais of the House of Representatives on January 6th, or did they just let it dangle out there saying that they were still the electors? They definitely let it dangle out there. And and, and I'll add to that, uh, not only did they let it dangle out there and continue the rhetoric of a, um, a rigged election and, a, and electoral fraud and all that, the state Republican Party produced an after-action report a few days, a few weeks after the election that basically ignored, almost entirely ignored the fact that Joe Biden and, and Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff uh, flipped Georgia races, but instead cast all the blame or most of the blame on Brad Raffensperger and said that he didn't, he failed to more vigorously uh, investigate perceived election fraud and all that. So it was a line that they continued even in official documents long after. So let me just follow up on or to kind of go back to the Trump rally in Texas over the weekend. How much sway do people think Trump has when he called for the the sort of rallies and marches in Fulton County? Do people think that there's a real chance that it'll happen? Yeah, he still has the devoted core of, of loyalists in Georgia. Uh, and I've got some numbers to back that up. But first, I mean, just he's he's now endorsed four statewide Republican candidates who are entirely, well, not entirely, but mo- some of them are entirely hinging their campaigns on Trump's endorsement. David Perdue, former U.S. senator, lost in that January 2021 runoff. His campaign so far has been Trump, 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 right? He is banking on the fact that Donald Trump still has that sort of enormous power and clout in Georgia. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution came out with a poll a few days ago that tries to show the extent of Trump's influence in Georgia. And it shows that half of voters, half of Georgia voters would be less likely to support a candidate endorsed by by Donald Trump. But about about 20% of voters, including a plurality of Republicans, would be more likely to support a Donald Trump-backed candidate. So his influence still runs very deep in Republican politics. And that is why even the candidates who lost out on his endorsement aren't saying a single bad word about Donald Trump. You will not see Governor Brian Kemp, who is the number one target maybe on Donald Trump's list. Uh, you will not see him ever say an unkind word about Donald Trump. It's true that he can probably move primary voters. I think the equally disturbing question is whether or not he can move people with armed, armed with guns against people who oppose him. Or, I mean, or just protests that could get out of hand, right? That, that maybe not a, 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 who knows? But there is there is definitely a concern and has been long before he he uh, said that those remarks at the rally. We, we have been bouncing around ideas about how to cover the security aspects of this at the AJC, you know, in terms of how, how do we get to the story before this rally? Because it has been a concern of of local officials for a while. What, you know, does the does downtown Atlanta turn into an armed camp? Certainly, that was one of the concerns, and it's gone public now, but that was one of the concerns that lawmakers and that Governor Kemp had about not turning, not calling a special session after Trump's defeat. Uh, You know, Trump and his allies wanted a special session to investigate election fraud and all that. But Jeff Duncan, the lieutenant governor, in his book wrote that he did not, you know, one of the reasons he opposed it was he knew that it could turn the Capitol. And I, 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 in my heart, I believe it, too, that the Capitol would be this giant protest site. 
you'd have counter protesters and protesters and and things could very well have gotten out of hand. Before we take it as an article of faith that the 2020 election in Georgia was freely and fairly and accurately conducted, why don't we just, you know, quickly go through the proof points of why people shouldn't be concerned that there was excessive fraud there, including, I think, three recounts? Yeah, three, well, three separate tallies, two recounts, but three separate tallies all confirmed Joe Biden's victory, not by much, right? About 11,000, less than, fewer than 12,000 votes, but but still a victory nonetheless. Bipartisan election officials, including the Republican Secretary of State, said that the uh, the results were confirmed. Governor certified the results. You had dozens, more, more than a dozen legal cases either withdrawn or dismissed by the courts that were sort of pro-Trump lawsuits trying to overturn aspects of the election. And uh, you had an audit of absentee ballots in one of the most densely populated suburbs of, of Georgia that found um, no instances of verifiable voter fraud. So all that put together is why we, why we, and, and also, you know, Trump's own attorney general said that there was no voter fraud, no, no rampant voter fraud in this election. So on the question of, of Trump's hold over the Republican Party, uh, I'm looking at the most recent polling out of Georgia. You guys did, did one. Uh, Quinnipiac mm-hmm. also polled last week and they had... Brian Kemp, the governor who's been the target of Trump's attacks, over David Perdue, the former senator who's running, as you said, as the Trump guy, Kemp was up by seven points. That suggests to me that maybe Trump's sway is not nearly as much as some people say it is. Yeah, that is a major concern. Our poll also showed, we didn't do a head-to-head between David Perdue or Brian Kemp, but we did a hypothetical matchup in November between Perdue and Stacey Abrams and Kemp and Stacey Abrams, and it showed Brian Kemp a much better standing against Stacey Abrams than, than David Perdue. So it was just and beat, that, beating Stacey, Stacey beating Abrams. Her, outside the margin of error, right? So that was pretty significant as well. But no, look, uh, if you're David Perdue's camp, you say, well, you know, he just got in the race a few weeks ago. He got in a race in, in, in December. He hasn't really started spending money behind. Today, in fact, Tuesday was the day that he debuted his first TV ad and has D- Donald Trump giving a direct-to-camera appeal, saying, vote for David Perdue because he's tough and, and Brian Kemp didn't stand up for you. So he's not only now starting to rev up his campaign. He, he's on a campaign statewide tour that started today as well. So you can say that if you're David Perdue, but if you're Brian Kemp, you can go back and say he's the first lifelong Republican governor in Georgia history, and he's certainly no squishy moderate. You know, objectively, you can say he's no, he's no, he has not moved to the middle. He signed the strictest anti-abortion law that Georgia's ever seen that seeks to ban abortions as, as early as six weeks. Um, he signed the election law last year that got so much uh, ridicule and controversy that President Biden called Jim Crow 2.0. He is backing what, the, what he calls constitutional carry, but it's a vast expansion of gun rights and rollback of gun restrictions that will probably pass this election. And he's also echoing a lot of Glenn Youngkin's uh, strategy in Virginia, talking about school, classroom, culture wars issues that really energize the conservative base. Any plans for Trump to come and hold a rally in Georgia for yeah. Purdue? Yeah, he came a few months ago before, after Herschel Walker got in the race, but before David Perdue got in the race and was up there with his Trump slate of other, of a candidate for Secretary of State, Lieutenant Governor and Senate. So he already has had came, come here once, but he has promised to, to, 
to come back often. And so I won't be surprised to see him in the next two months. The primary here is in May. So if we don't see him by mid-May, I'll be shocked. So you mentioned that your poll has Kemp beating Stacey Abrams outside the margin of error. Quinnipiac's poll actually had Herschel Walker, the former football player running as a Republican with support from Trump, beating Raphael Warnock. I know the title of your upcoming book, which we're all eagerly waiting to read, is Flipped, but are you going to have to do a, a, a sequel, Flipped Back? Flipped again. I might, yeah. right? I mean, this yeah. election- what's going on? Why are, after, after Democrats had that great effective sweep in 2020, why are polls showing Republicans poised to do the same uh, this time around? I mean, part of it could partly be the Trump effect, right? With Trump off the ballot, some Republican voters can come home. Part of it's the Biden effect. Our poll also found that Biden's approval ratings in Georgia have fallen off a cliff. They've gone from 51% in May to 34% now. And among those- 34%. 34%. The third. And among those are some really concerning numbers if you're you're a senior Democrat, if you're Stacey Abrams or, or any of her allies in Georgia, because- the number of independent support, the, the independent support for Joe Biden has fallen off has, by double digits as well. Independents were once this reliably Republican bloc in Georgia that have, that moved toward the left uh, during the Trump era. Now it might be moving back towards the right. You had Democrats, about 20% of Democrats disapprove of Joe Biden. So there's some, there's some angst among his own party, for sure. And among Black voters, the number of dis, the, the disapproval rating has more than quadrupled since May from eight to 36%. Now that latter point, you're not going to hear Stacey Abrams or Raphael Warnock worrying about too much because they're two of the most famous black politicians in the nation. And they, they're not too worried. I'm sure their campaigns aren't too worried. They can energize African-American voters. But the parts that do worry Democrats are those numbers with independents and with disaffected Democrats in general. But if you start losing the independent crowd in Georgia, your path to victory is far more narrow. Hey, give us a quick rundown on Herschel Walker. Um, I mean, some of us remember him from his football days, but he seems a little flaky uh, from a distance. Is he a serious candidate? What are his strengths? What are his weaknesses? Yeah, well, he has to be seen as a serious candidate because he's the front runner. I mean, in that Quinnipiac poll you mentioned, he has 80% of the Republican primary support. Uh, he is trouncing his rivals. A lot of well-known folks, uh, well-known Republicans stayed out of the race because they knew that Herschel Walker was considering it. And they knew that Donald Trump would probably endorse him like he ended up doing. So David Perdue, Kelly Leffler, Doug Collins, a lot of those big names said, no way, I'm not going to get close to that. Some either mid-level names did too. Several Congress members said they're not going to run if Herschel Walker runs. He has lived in Texas for decades, Herschel Walker. He moved to Georgia only a few weeks before qualifying, before announcing his campaign, I should say. Um, but he has such high visibility and he's got Trump's endorsement that basically those two elements alone have helped create him into this uh, early juggernaut. It's going to be real hard for any of any of those rivals in the Republican race. And they're not well known. The best known rival he has is Agriculture Commissioner Gary Black, who's won statewide a few times, but is not exactly on the tip of the tongues of of Metro Atlanta voters. And Gary Black is not fundraising nearly to the level the Herschel Walker has. And you're right, Herschel Walker's had a lot of campaign gaffes. He's had a lot of confusing statements. He called John Lewis a senator. 
He has refused to answer questions about policies. He's had more than half of his media interviews were with national outlets. And of those, it's primarily ESPN talking about sports and Fox News, getting broadly friendly questions. And meanwhile, he's been doing more private speeches than than, uh, we certainly haven't had access to him in that sort of way at the AJC. So there's questions about his availability and his accessibility as, as a candidate. And of course, about his history, his long history of mental illness and allegations of abusing his wife, his ex-wife and, and other women that are, have come up and doing this campaign and will continue to come up. So big question marks, but despite all that, <laughs> he is still the front runner and Republican voters that, that we've talked to, many of them seem unfazed by uh, a lot of the criticisms against him. So Greg, I want to get back to the uh, the Fonnie Willis investigation. And by the way, in addition to all the other things I've learned uh, from this conversation, I, I think we've learned that her name is pronounced Fonny, not Fanny. Yeah, Fonny. Okay. Well, good to know. F-A-W-E. But so clearly one of the, you know, I mean, Trump's already doing this and his allies, I'm sure, are as well or will. They'll be attacking her as a partisan hack, that this is a political witch hunt that Fulton County is this Democratic stronghold and they're just, you know, trying to do damage to the Republicans and to Trump personally and try to prevent him from winning election again. So tell us a little bit about Fonnie Willis and, you know, is she, um, what are her political ambitions and to what extent do you think those attacks will stick? And then separately, and this is something that I think Isakoff was hearing from a from a lawyer down in, in, in Georgia, I think a lot of us have, have assumed that a Fulton County jury uh, would be, you know, a highly, you know, very democratic, if not entirely democratic. But that may not be the case, right? I mean, you might get some, a little bit of political diversity on a, on a trial jury down there. Yeah, I'll tackle the first question first. Fonnie Willis was a longtime deputy of, of the former DA, Paul Howard, who had been in office for, for it seemed like forever. And it's very hard to topple an incumbent in a sort of down ticket, lower profile race like DA, right? I mean, it's not the it's not, usually not the reason you're going to the ballot box to vote. So it's harder for those candidates to gain traction. But she did. She picked up endorsements from across the community, from very important legal officials and legal groups in Georgia, from elected officials, from city council members, um, from county officials, who all were kind of fed up with, the, with her predecessor's approach. And really, one of the things she went off as one was getting tough on the backlog of cases that had grown even bigger during the pandemic. She was going to clean up those cases. She was going to stop the revolving door, in her words. She was going to um, put away the violent offenders and and divert more of the nonviolent offenders away from prison sentences. And that was a message that not only uh, elected officials, but also uh, Fulton County voters really resonated with them you know, was not part of her campaign to get tough on Trump, right? That was not, that did not come up. And then she was elected before that phone call and before and before Trump's efforts, obviously, to, to undermine the election really ramped up. But the, there have been questions since, internal questions too, about whether or not this is the best use of, of the office's resources. And when she's been asked that question, she, she says, why not? 
you know, this happened in Fulton County. This happened in the city of Atlanta. This this is directly affecting uh, Georgia elections. This is this is in her purview, she believes. But how political is she? I mean, is she one of these prosecutors who's using? I mean, she's she's a career prosecutor. She's been there mm-hmm. for what twenty one years or something. Mm-hmm. You know, you do see these prosecutors who come into office and they are looking to use that office as a stepping stone for other yeah. statewide office for gubernatorial. Is that something that's you think has been on her radar screen that's or a not? Good question. That she is not one of those prosecutors that I can think of four or five George prosecutors right now that that are mentioned for higher office or running for AG one day or running for for she's not one of them. That is, doesn't mean that you know that could change, but she is not one of those prosecutors that is always at the state capitol or always holding press conferences around around the state to try to raise their profiles. Nothing against those prosecutors, but she is not seen as. As one of those, she is very new in this office, right? It's, it's only been a year-ish. So um, she's still getting her ground, her footing in this current office and is really, you know, she she has become more of a political player because her, her, her reputation has grown. So she endorsed Andre Dickens. Uh, it, was a, it was a moment. It was an important moment in the campaign when she endorsed Andre Dickens for Atlanta mayor. He ended up winning because it showed that Andre Dickens had much needed law enforcement support because crime was such a big deal in the city of Atlanta. But that also, to me, does not mean that she's already looking up the next rung of the ladder. This this job is a big one. And just tell us what you uh, about the makeup of Fulton yeah. County juries. Yeah. So that's a great question. I, and I used to cover, before I covered politics, I covered legal. So I, I've been in many, many trials, including the Brian Nichols trial of the accused of the courthouse gunman um, in Fulton County courthouse. And Fulton County is a bizarre county because it used to be two. It was the sort of urban, mostly Atlanta-centric county. And there was a, back then, it was in the early 1900s, it was the very rural Milton County. And the two combined together. So it's a misshapen county that looks like it's two separate counties because it used to be. But basically, the lower half of Fulton County incorporates most of the city of Atlanta and then primarily Black communities in the south part of the county. Whereas the upper part, the North Fulton County part, is mostly suburban. Um, the city is very affluent cities like Sandy Springs and Roswell and Alpharetta and mostly white, although they're becoming more diverse, especially with Asian American populations. So um, still a it's the largest, most populous county in Georgia and also a huge Democratic stronghold, but not the bluest county in Georgia and not. And as you mentioned earlier, not instinctively, you know, Republican or Democrat. So I just want to also uh, flag one other witness that in this case, who we may not have spoken of, you you mentioned uh, political prosecutors, and all of a sudden, my mind went to the former U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Georgia, B.J. Pack, um, who resigned from office rather precipitously in, I think, January of uh, 2021, and is another potential witness to the kind of intimidation campaign that President Trump and his allies seem to have been running and that Fonnie Willis is investigating. Maybe you can tell us more about B.J. Pack. Yeah, B.J. is fascinating because he was a Republican state legislature um, before he became U.S. attorney who did have his eye on higher office. I mean, I saw him as a surefire candidate for attorney general before uh, one of his rivals was appointed to that job. He's one of the first Asian-American Republican lawmakers elected to to the legislature in, in Georgia history. And, you know, obviously a very smart and shrewd attorney who, despite going on the record, raising questions about Donald Trump in 2016, um, he was one of the people that I and other reporters would go to for a Republican voice who is critical of Donald Trump. 
despite raising those concerns, he was appointed by Trump as the U.S. attorney. And later, when he refused to investigate these false claims of election fraud, Donald Trump, according to, to testimony in, in before congressional investigators, called him a never Trump attorney. Also, he called him that at the uh, in the famous Raffensperger phone call. He said that he, you know, he didn't trust the never Trump attorney in the reference to B.J. Pack. And under pressure, again, this has all come out in, in congressional testimony from other Department of Justice officials, but under pressure, B.J. Pack decided to step down rather than be fired because he did not want to um, be forced to investigate this election fraud. And for a while, B.J. wouldn't tell the story, but he, he ended up doing so before congressional investigators. All right. So, Greg, to wrap up here, bottom line, um, what's uh, what's your over under? Is uh, she going to is Willis going to indict Trump? How many counts? And if she is, when is that going to (laughs) happen? I have no idea how many counts, but my, my gut and this isn't some inside information. This is just this is just my gut from watching it and covering it is I think she will indict. I might be wrong. But I think it'll be probably summer late later in the year. And imagine imagine the confluence of <laughs> Georgia's election and an indictment in a criminal investigate criminal indictment against Donald Trump or his allies, because it might not be Trump, it might be Rudy Giuliani. But just imagine what Georgia's gonna look like. <laughs> I would imagine your head and everybody else's at the uh, Atlanta Journal Constitution will explode. This, yeah. uh, I wonder if your legal reporter, if your legal reporter has started to research the uh, extradition treaty between Florida and Georgia. <laughs> we need to go back to that. The compact. Yeah, I think they might call it a before? compact. You know, if, uh, <laughs> Uh, can they? All right. Uh, well, anyway, uh, Greg, um, great to have you back. And um, once Flipped comes out, we will have you back again. Uh, until then, thanks for joining us. You can pre-order it now. Okay. All right. We will. All right. We will. We will.